Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Asheville, North Carolina's history as a music center goes back to the 1920s and string band troubadours like Leslie Riddle and Bascom Lamar Lunsford. Oh, he lived to be 365. The minstrel of the Appalachians. When the Lord came and took him back to heaven alive. Another key figure was country music pioneer Jimmy Rogers, the singing brakeman. My Carolina sunshine. But there's always been a lot more to this town than acoustic music and scenic mountain views. From the experimental Black Mountain College that drew a range of minds as diverse as Joseph Oliver's, John Cage, and Albert Einstein, Asheville was also a spiritual home for electronic music pioneer Bob Moog. He invented the Moog synthesizer, first popularized by experimental bands like Kraftwerk and giant disco hits like Donna Summer's I Feel Love. It's also a town where busking culture ensures that music flows from every street corner. I would say that busking is one of the signature musical hallmarks of Asheville. That's Gar Raglan, founder and CEO of Citizen Vinyl in Asheville. I think busking is a distinctive part of Asheville's creative culture. And it's the adopted hometown of many modern musicians in a multitude of genres, including Pokey Lafarge, who we'll hear from later, and spent his early career busking in Asheville. and Moses Sumney. A musician whose sonic palette is so broad, it's all but unclassifiable. What is it about this place that has drawn individual artists for over a century? Perhaps it's that whatever your style, Asheville is a place that allows creativity to grow and thrive. From the bluegrass situation in Come Here, North Carolina, this is Carolina Calling, a series exploring the history of North Carolina as told through its music and the musicians who made it. I'm David Minconi, and this is Asheville, North Carolina. I found L.A. distracting as an artist. Moses Sumney, in an interview with NPR in May 2020. I found often that I was so kind of wrapped up in the cult of personality that it was distracting from the art. And whenever I needed to write music or work on my album, I would leave L.A. I would go to the mountains 
you know, go to Big Bear, go to Topanga, or come to North Carolina. And at some point, I felt like, well, why, why not just live in a place that gives me constant inspiration instead of retreating and running away to go find it every time? But Sumney's not the only artist retreating to the mountains and making them home. Take, for instance, the Steep Canyon Rangers, the Grammy Award-winning bluegrass group, who now call nearby Brevard home. Well, you know, I'm not sure if people move there because just the general beauty of, of the mountains. The Steep's banjo player, Graham Sharp. I think a lot of people move there just to kind of the romantic sort of retreat from big city to the mountains. So I think it's a lot of those types. As far back as the early 20th century, musicians have been drawn to this mountain town as both a retreat and a home, almost equidistant from the urban hubs of Nashville and Raleigh. This was a kind of a central location. David Holt, a four-time Grammy winner, best known as the host of Folkways, a television program about folk music and culture, and North Carolina Mountain Treasures on North Carolina Public Television. People came here. There was lots of music in those days. Within those 10 years between 1900 and 1920, a lot happened. Part of what makes Asheville and Buncombe County unique is the sheer variety of artists who have come to call it home. From folk, country, and bluegrass stars, to electronic music pioneers, to legendary classical composers like Bella Bartok, the Hungarian composer, pianist, and ethnomusicologist who moved to the area in the 1970s. Bella Bartok came to the United States to sort of help grow the concert scene in the United States. That's Mickey Gamble, founder and owner of Crossroads Music Group in nearby Arden. He was sort of pegged for that. He was financed for it, but he had tuberculosis. So he came here in 1972 because Asheville had a number of TB treatment centers. I don't know if they ever actually did much, but people lived there. So he he lived here for a year and a half, and while he was here... He wrote the Concerto for Orchestra, which is probably his most famous piece of music. And then there's the historic significance of Black Mountain College, which plays a very important role in not only Asheville's cultural history, but America's. Founded in 1933 by John Andrew Rice, Theodore Dreyer, and several others, Black Mountain was experimental in nature and committed to an interdisciplinary approach, prioritizing art making as a necessary component of education and attracting a faculty and lecturers that included many of America's leading visual artists, composers, poets, and designers. What I wanted to do was to increase the invitations of other person. Music, art, painting, Poetry, novels, history, all these things. The fascination of the peculiar action of the scientist and the moment when the scientist becomes also the poet, out of which he could choose the the kind of world in which he he proposed to live. That's the voice of Black Mountain co-founder John Andrew Rice, part of a 2007 documentary on Black Mountain College called Fully Awake. The Black Mountain College was founded at the tail end of the Great Depression, so it was a school that never had very much money. Ruth Erickson, a scholar of Black Mountain College at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. 
And this economy of means, which was really at the foundation of the school, manifested itself in many ways. So one of the ways is that there was a work program that John Rice had formed when the school was first founded. And that meant that students and faculty alike all worked together on just how the school was able to exist. So they worked at the farm, they cleaned out the cow stalls, they planted plants in the garden, they cleaned dishes, they served in the dining hall. And everybody at Black Mountain College participated in the work program. And indeed, it was really fundamental to how the school existed on so little money for so long. And then the second wave of illustrious teachers that was in the 50s. Wayne Kirby is professor of music at UNC Asheville, another noted scholar on the influence of Black Mountain College on the culture of Asheville and beyond. John Cage, needless to say, a seminal influence in uh, the world of 20th century. Merce Cunningham, seminal in dance, contemporary dance. Robert Rauschenberg, visual art. And Olson was one of the modern great poets. So out of that grew all these followers and all of these teachers influenced the entire Western world and the way they made art. Black Mountain College lasted for the better part of two decades before closing. But during that relatively short window. Again, Gar Raglan, CEO of Asheville's Citizen Vinyl and longtime member of Asheville's musical and artistic community. So many American cultural luminaries were associated with the college. And it's really, for many of us who work in the arts here in Western North Carolina, we really look up to that and consider it a great sort of homegrown source of inspiration. So there are many of us that are, in many ways, trying to keep that sort of creative spirit alive and well in, in our own projects here in town. The original Black Mountain College facility still exists, with artists and educators alike still utilizing the space for installations and events open to the public, Wayne Kirby among them. Matter of fact, I did an installation in the Roundhouse where John would teach. Referring to Black Mountain College co-founder John Andrew Rice. I got to know John back in the 70s a bit. So when I say John, I say it because I met him. <laughs> we weren't best buddies, though, but he was the kind of guy like Bob that was John. And Bob was Bob. Bob being Bob Moog, inventor of the first commercial synthesizer who set up his company's headquarters in Asheville. The physicist was the inventor of the first commercial synthesizer known as the Moog synthesizer, played by everyone from Stevie Wonder to Emerson Lake and Palmer. He took up residence in Asheville in 1978 after moving from New York, staying until his death in 2005. He felt a real kinship to the solitude and just the expansiveness of the natural surroundings here in the Appalachian Mountains. Bob Moog's daughter and director of the Bob Moog Foundation and Moogseum, Michelle Moog Kusa. I also think that he really embraced the kind of smaller city atmosphere that led to more genuine relationships and the creativity that he found here as well was very important to him and something that resonated with him deeply. After resettling his family from New York to Asheville, Bob Moog began overseeing the building of his home in a rural area about 35 minutes south of the city called Turkey Creek. It was there he met his neighbor and eventual close friend, Mickey Gamble, founder and owner of Crossroads Music Group, who we heard from earlier. So he built his own house, basically, he hired people, but he built this huge eight-sided home, three stories. The 
people that came to his home when I was living kind of next door, it was like a quarter of a mile away, but Steve Jobs, Wozni, Ray Kurzweil, Wendy, Walter, Carlos, Toto, Keith Emerson, the parties, the dinner all night parties. But, you know, he built a workshop besides his home. He was an inventor. And he would get interested in ideas he had, and he would work on them for months at a time. I really feel like he found the balance to his life in the sonic world, out in the nature, in the natural world. And that, you know, not only did it weave its way into his work, but sometimes I felt that the very organic nature of his instruments are just sonic mirrors of the natural world that he was experiencing in the other parts of his life. Keyboard players and bands of all stripes have pushed the boundaries of what's possible thanks to Bob Moog's Sonic Innovations. My name is Michael Jorgensen. I play perhaps most notably with a band called Wilco, and I have a bunch of other musical projects that sort of satisfy my restless curiosity. Blizzard Music, Expanders, Quindar, and I play keyboards mainly in almost all these uh, projects. My background in music goes way far back. My dad, he was a recording engineer in New York, and we lived in suburban New Jersey, which was only about 20 minutes from Manhattan. So when I was probably seven or eight years old, my dad brought home a mini Moog synthesizer set it up in the basement where our music listening and TV watching all happened and put some headphones on me and he said like here turn these knobs and from that moment I was completely obsessed with the fact that this scientific piece of equipment with piano keys would make these incredible sounds and I just got lost in in that and that was pretty much <laughs> ground zero <laughs> for my fascination with synthesizers and keyboards and technology and music and human expression. And of course, the influence of Bob Moog in and around Asheville continues to be felt to this day. Bob and I cooked up this idea of him joining the faculty. Again, professor of music at UNC Asheville, Wayne Kirby. And so I got him on the faculty. And that brought us international notoriety. And so we've had hundreds and hundreds of students that came to UNC because of Bob's involvement. The Moogseum, located in the heart of downtown Asheville, is also a major tourist attraction in the area. We celebrate a lot of different kinds of music through the Moogseum that have incorporated Moog synthesizers. We ball that all up and provide it in these wonderful experiential exhibits at the Moogseum for people to enjoy and continue to be inspired by. There's a lot of artistic and intellectual creativity here in Asheville, North Carolina. Hey folks, this is Pope Farge. I'm originally from Bloomington, Normal, Illinois. Like many artists who came to call Asheville home, Pokey Lafarge grew up outside the South. So around 15 or 16, I really, really fell in love with bluegrass music and decided I want to play the mandolin because of not only Bill Monroe, but because of Ronnie McCurry from the Del McCurry Band. And that was my first instrument. However, it was the old time fiddle 
that led me to Asheville, North Carolina back in, oh, I'd say 2004 or five, five, somewhere around there. What, what drove me to do it and what kept me going is probably the same thing. Joy is measured in height, right? Love is measured in depth. I had a deep love for music and I just wanted to be around it all the time. So it was to meet other musicians, also live in the mountains, live in the south. Professional musicians that I met at that time. Dirk Powell, John Hammond, and Bruce Green, East Kentucky style fiddle player. Meaning Jay Wittenhouse, the trumpet player from Scorma Zippers, who was the trumpet player in Firecracker Jazz Band, was a big deal for me. That was really cool. I recorded my first record in Nashville. I saved up enough money to pay, buy, I don't know, 500 copies or something. And then I was off and running. Pokey is a living emblem of the busking tradition, the long-standing practice of musicians setting out a hat and playing on the street for pocket change. You can make a decent living doing that in Nashville, North Carolina Center for Busking. Busking in Nashville is very competitive. I rarely got down there early enough to get a spot at what Pack Square, right? Where the there's a roundabout and they have the statue in the middle of the roundabout, Pack Square. So I ended up finding that I could get a decent spot with good foot traffic over by the Thomas Wolf Auditorium. That's pretty much where I posted up. I would say that busking is one of the signature musical hallmarks of Asheville. I've seen it alive and well in a number of different communities that I've visited and, and lived in, including New York City, you know, in the subways for sure. But the caliber of musicianship in our busking community is really phenomenal and we have a combination of regulars people who live here who busk quite a bit in addition to their jobs as music teachers or whatever day gigs they have but it also attracts this kind of itinerant busking community too and it's i think distinctive part of asheville's creative culture for both residents of asheville as well as the tourists who come and visit while busking is not limited to any one genre, the sounds most commonly heard around Pack Square are those of the bluegrass, fiddle, and old-time traditions that have long been part of Asheville's history. Jimmy Rogers spent some time in Asheville, too. If you're digging into the far reaches of, of the South for different old-time music, you're going to come across Jimmy Rogers' name repeatedly. I am dreaming tonight of an old southern town was inspired by Jimmy Rogers' story. He had all these big plans going to Asheville that didn't work out for him. Nobody cared. Um, and look what happened to him. He's known as the father of country music, you know? Pretty cool. In addition to Jimmy Rogers' stint in Asheville, Western North Carolina native Leslie Riddle helped shape American popular music at the start of the 20th century through his work with the Carter family. John Henry was a baby boy while Leslie's name would be overlooked in the annals of music history, he was widely revered on a local level. Again, David Holt, host of Folkways and North Carolina Mountain Treasures. Leslie Riddle died before I got here, but he was really important in the whole scene. He was a very light-colored black man who had access into the black community because he was a good musician. He was a wonderful finger-style guitarist. Now, today we go, oh, finger-style guitarist, Chet Atkins, Libba Cotton, Doc Watson, people like that. but. This was the early days of that style. And so he could go into the black community with A.P. Carter and they could visit folks and 
Leslie Riddle could learn the tune and learn the melody and how it was played while AP would write down the words. And that's how the Carter family got a lot of their songs. So he went around with AP, got him into the black community and learned the material so that AP could record it with the Carter family. While Leslie Riddle and A.P. Carter were on the road collecting songs from across the Appalachians, Bascom Lamar Lunsford was starting up the longest-running music festival in American history back in Asheville. The festival itself actually started in 1903 in a field behind his house, supposedly the oldest festival in the United States. It's not something that's widely known or talked about, but it went on for years before businessmen decided that would be a cool thing to bring into town. Yeah, it was originally called the Rhododendron Festival. I think in 1928 was the very first one. And it was outside on the city square. And the thing is still going to this day. It's a wonderful thing that happens on Saturday nights between July 4th and Labor Day. And bands are out there picking, bursting under the trees. But if you go and if you went to YouTube and looked at some of his videos, you'd see the sunshine in his face, the smile, the laughter, and so forth. He just loved the music. And his legacy goes on. Today, not only does Lamar's legacy continue with the Mountain Music Festival, but other local artists have followed in his footsteps. The Steeps have set up an entity called Mountain Song, and Mountain Song Festival, you may know a little of that. It's the best thing in the area. He's, of course, referring to the Steep Canyon Rangers, or the Steeps, as they're affectionately known locally. Here's the Steeps frontman and guitar player, Woody Platt. When we started Mountain Song Festival, it was predominantly a bluegrass festival. Doc Watson was our first headliner, third time out. The Biscuit Burners and the Steep Canyon Rangers was the first lineup 15 years ago. Over the course of time, not only has the Rangers sound evolved, but so has sort of our lineup and our definition of bluegrass and Americana and how it all works together. So it's been really great to put a traditional bluegrass band on as the, on the same day as an act like Mavis Staples. Today, the Forge Your Own Path vitality that has made Asheville a hub for musicians and sonic artists of every stripe continues to thrive. Take Gar Ragland's Citizen Vinyl, which has established itself as a recording studio, vinyl press, and downtown hangout. Citizen Vinyl sits at this nexus of our past and the history and the heritage of all these great things that we have been lucky to incorporate into our brand and into the ethos of this business. And I feel like our real opportunity and responsibility is to share that history and celebrate it and have it inspire all of the future creative works that we're going to be doing indefinitely here. And by that, I mean the making of new records here in the studio and the pressing of many new creative works on our vinyl presses downstairs. And I think it's just a tremendous opportunity. And for us not to celebrate and honor that would be, I think, a failure on our part not to appreciate and capitalize on this rich history that we've frankly inherited here with this building. So it's an essential part of what we're doing. In addition to Citizen Vinyl, there are a number of very important organizations and people here in this community that are working to celebrate and support our local music community. There are also a zillion breweries and half a dozen of them have decent facilities for shows and so forth and they do a lot of that 
Sierra Nevada being probably the biggest one. Asheville has a little bit of everything that you could possibly want at a high level. So the quality of everything you're looking for, it's here and it's of good quality. Whether it's art or hiking or food. Where else can you call up any of the 50 other musicians and just say, you know, I'm having a little picking today, we want to come over? And they'll all be really great pickers and friends to one another. And I, I, that's one of the main things, just being able to get together with people and enjoy the music. There's an expression you see on bumper stickers everywhere. It says, keep Asheville weird. And there's a level of weirdness that makes this place feel soft and lovely. And I think it, it attracts people that want that kind of environment to live in. What all these musicians and artists and entrepreneurs have had in common over the years is they all needed an easygoing, open-minded place to develop. They found just that in Asheville, which you could call North Carolina music's land of opportunity. The scenery doesn't hurt either. And that's a wrap for this edition of Carolina Calling, exploring the history of North Carolina music. Join us on our next stop across the Old North State, Shelby. Carolina Calling is a production of The Bluegrass Situation in Come Here, North Carolina. This episode was written by Jenna Warnicke, Amy Reitenauer-Jacobs, Chris Jacobs, and me, David Minconi. Produced by Shelby Williamson and Justin Hiltner. Edited by Chris Jacobs and associate editor Jenna Warnicke. Special thanks to executive producer Amy Reitenauer-Jacobs at The Bluegrass Situation and Billy Maupin of Come Here, North Carolina. Our theme music is the song Eerie Fiddler, written and recorded by Andrew Marlin. The roots of American music run deep in North Carolina. Learn more by visiting comeherenc.com. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts, as it really helps us introduce the show to new listeners. Discover more Roots music podcasts at thebluegrasssituation.com. I'm David Minconi. Thanks for listening.